stick around here long enough I'll teach you everything I know and everything I'm learning about how to mine the riches out of the Bible God's Word last week I gave you a couple of my little inside secret tips I'm sure you remember them um, one of them was I called the flyover it's kind of like a method of Bible study importance of getting the flyover first having this servant big idea right and then we talked about like I, these are my little favorite ways of talking about this eating the orange is that that's when you get down to the, the the orange grove a lady wrote me from florida this week who had watched the message and she said usually they're not orchards they're groves so i'm correcting that so the orange grove and and um and you you pick the orange and you section the orange and you eat in other words you get the little details you observe every word of the text and you savor every idea and then it's another kind of method of Bible study. Uh, you know, there, there's also like the grammatical construction. You know, you do the, it's like you're back in school and you do the sentence diagramming, you know. And to a degree, we kind of all do that to really understand what a sentence means. Or you do word studies. It's common, you know, to get lexicons or kind of dictionaries of the original languages of the Bible and to kind of, you know, you, maybe you are a student of the original language of the Bible or maybe you know a guy or a girl who's a student of the original languages of the Bible and then you can do word studies and that's a great way to study the Bible study every single word of the text that you're that you're thinking about to get an idea of the deeper riches of Scripture that's really important and then I, I love this one just literary structure I know for some of you are like I'm going to sleep I feel like I'm back in school stay with me um, but like the literary structure is like what's the literary structure of this passage what it's like and we'll see that today because what we have today is the Sermon on the Mount it's called discourse so it's a record of a talk it's discourse it's a kind of literature and it should be recognized what kind of literature are we reading poetry here is this narrative like story this is discourse it's a unique kind of literature and and to study the literature of the Bible and to remind yourself what kind of literature is this is a really powerful way to unlock meaning and you're going to see that uh, today one of the things that I think oh uh, there's authorial intent I'll talk about this a lot what was the author's original intent who was the author and what was the setting and who was the original audience and why would he be saying this to that audience and that when you unlock that you often immediately see the application in your personal life this is a huge question to ask when you're studying the Bible who is the author what was his intent to the original audience? So again, that's a really big one. That helps me a lot when I think about that. That's not what we're talking about today. Another one is emphasis. It, like when you read a passage, there are different ways to see emphasis. You know, you, you, for instance, one of the things that we do for emphasis is repetition. One of the things that we do for emphasis is repetition. 
See what I did there? Um, and in other words, thank you for that one person who laughed. I, I love you. Whoever you are that laughs at whatever I'm trying to be funny, you're my favorite person ever. Anyway, so like, but, but when you, but, and there are different ways. If you look at a text, sometimes a pastor, a Bible study teacher will say, notice how many words, how many times that word is repeated. So that's super important. Like last week, your father who sees in secret will reward you. And over and over again, your father sees in secret. Your father sees in secret. Your father sees in It's repeated over and over again. What does this tell you? It tells you there's an emphasis there, an important emphasis. That's one of the methods of Bible study. Another way to tell emphasis, not only repetition, but like what they call the law of end stress. Sometimes you, save, you obviously save the big thing at the very end, and now, okay, that's the big idea because it's stressed at the end. Or other times in Bible study, you have brackets. You have a, a passage that starts with a unique phrase and ends with the same unique phrase, or maybe it occurs more than once, and, you've, and you can see, oh, that must be the big idea because it's bracketed. And if you, got, you want to get really fancy, you can study chiastic structure, which is like the X structure. It's like, the, like you're running out and back. And when you're studying the Bible, it's like the big idea might be in the middle and what it does is it kind of goes A, B, C, B, A. I lost you, didn't I? That's because I'm real smart. You should come back every week. <laughs> just kidding. So anyway, these are just ideas. But today, the thing that I want to talk about, I call it the principle of the back breaks. Back breaks. So when I'm a kid, my dad says to me, Kenny, when you do back brakes, and we didn't have expensive cars like you do, you know, with disc brakes all around. We had old clunkers with, with drum brakes on the back, right? And, and if you can take drum brakes apart and put them back together, you are a very smart person. My dad would say to me, now, Kenny, when you take the drum brakes apart, what you want to do is you don't want to take them both apart at the same time because you're going to want to be able to go look at the other one to see how you put it back together. And then he said, and you want to lay down all the parts real carefully, and you'll lay them out in careful order. And he says, and here's the thing. When you put everything back together and you think you got it right, if you have any parts left over, you got it wrong. <laughs> now, I just love that. I think about that almost every week as I study the Scripture. And this is like I have a big idea. Often, a passage has a big idea that runs through it. Not always, but usually. For instance, in the Proverbs, parts of it do, parts of it don't. Aphorisms or Proverbs, they kind of stand alone. And some people think the text that we're going to talk about today, the seventh chapter of Matthew, Jesus goes from a really tight structure to Proverbs that are just kind of thrown in the air. Aphorisms, I don't think so. I think there's a singular theme that runs through this, and when you understand that, that really helps you understand what does this mean, and what does this mean to me? Why is this important to me this week? And you're going to see that. And so what I do then is I take this passage, I read it over and over again, I study it, I, I apply all the skills that I have to understanding it, and then I read the smart guys and girls and see if they agree with me. And then what I do is I go, if this singular theme, if it runs through the entire passage and it doesn't leave anything else, I don't have any leftover parts, the theme explains everything, then I know I'm onto something. Are you with me? That's like the principle of the back breaks. I guarantee you, you will never hear anybody describe it like that again. And probably you shouldn't. But here's the point I'm making. Jesus, when he gives the Sermon on the Mount here, the, the more you study it, the more you admire the speaker, the author. Not only the compiler, Matthew, he, his original audience, but the speaker of the discourse, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. 
and the beauty of his discourse and the order of his discourse and the symmetry of his discourse and how he reaches back into the Old Testament and how he reaches out into nature and how he reaches down into every human heart. He still does that today. When we study this passage, it reaches down into the deepest part of the human heart. I was, I was at a beautiful wedding yesterday. How many of you got to go to the beautiful wedding yesterday? Okay, was that a killer or what? So I had the sun in my eyes the whole time. That was my excuse. Um, what a beautiful wedding. I, I was at the wedding, but I was thinking about Matthew 7. God just broke my heart at that wedding. I'll explain that to you in a minute. What I'm getting at is, when you see the singular theme, this powerful singular theme that comes right out of the heart of God through the lips of Jesus to, the heart of, to your heart, it just might break your heart today. It just might humble you before God. It just might contribute to your holiness. It just might encourage you real big. So, are you excited about looking in the Word today? Let's take our Bibles and let's look now at Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount in, in my message I'm calling Jesus People 5 and, this, and, the, and Jesus People 6 is the last one as far as we know. In Matthew uh, chapter 7, we're going to go through verse 12 today. Even though the theme goes beyond that, and I'll just tell you what to look for ahead of time. So as I read this, here's what I want you to watch for. This is the singular unifying theme. This is the big idea, sometimes called the big hairy idea. The big idea that I believe that Jesus had that goes through this entire part of the sermon is of the importance of making right judgments or having a discerning but not judgmental heart. Jesus' people are discerning they're not judgmental, but they're discerning. And if you're kind of slow, that was the big idea right there. Jesus' people are discerning, but they're not judgmental. When you, when, now, when you listen to Matthew 7, notice how every part of this fits very clearly into that theme, and I'll show you how. So Jesus says in this sermon, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment... You pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me get the speck out of your eye, but there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Don't give to dogs what's holy, and don't throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Your mind right now should be going, what does that have to do with judgment? We'll answer that question. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks, it will be opened. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if you ask him for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to good, good, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? I want to stop right now because I'm afraid I might forget to tell you something, and I'm going to take a risk. We have a guest in our service today. He's a truck driver. He's a Christian. He lives in Virginia but he's from northern Iraq. He was a Muslim. 
He's a Christian now. Here's what he told me today. Am I okay on this? I tell this story? Here's what he told me. He said, I heard about God, but he wasn't loving and kind like a father. Then I went to a Christian church, and I heard about God, who's loving and kind like a father. And I thought about myself. I'm a father, and I love God must be a loving father, and that's how he came to know the Lord. Is that wonderful? Give me a hand. That's pretty cool. So, you don't want to miss church. Somebody might come from Iraq and tell you a story of God's saving grace. When, I re- when he told me that, I thought, that's the passage that we're preaching on today. It's almost like there is a God. Anyway, that's kind of cool. He says, you want me to hit you with lightning right now? All right, so, but he's a good, good father, and he knows what we need even before. Oh, while I'm just being undisciplined, let me tell you another story, and then I'll read the rest of the passage. So Hope is sitting over here. Hope is our daughter. Gotta tell you, this is so sweet. Hope came home the other night. Um, she's saving money up to take a test. She has to take a test for her beauty thing, 170 bucks. She's like, well, I need to take a few shifts at the daycare and make some money and take a test, and she's going off to this interview, and... Uh, it's a beautiful spring evening, and, I, and I, I'm out on the other porch, and I come around, and she's sitting there, and her eyes are just bright. She's come back from that interview, and her eyes are just bright, and she smiles. She goes, I think Lois says, tell him, tell him. She goes, you know what just happened? And what? She goes, I went off for the interview, and the lady that was interviewing me, she says, when can you start? Hope says, well, I can start after I, you know, take a few shifts, earn some money, and I take this test. The lady says, how much is the test? She said, $170. The lady gets in her purse, gave her the money. She says, you don't have to do this. And she says, the lady says to her, no, no, I think the Lord is in this. And her little voice caught when she told me that story. And then this is what she said. She says, man, I wish I had prayed for that. I said, Hope, I can't tell you how many hundreds of times I've done that. But your Heavenly Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. Isn't that great? You should pray because that way you get, an, you, you get an assist after the thing happens. But if you don't pray, you're right. This is the God of the Bible. Our Heavenly Father loves us and he hangs on our every word. And, he, and, and so, so when we ask him for things, like for discernment, for instance, he's eager to give it to us. And then there's this that we call the golden rule, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do to them. This is the law and the prophets. Now, in your original notes, let me show you these two things. In the original notes, this is what you saw. If you have this field guide to studying Jesus, you know that point number 11 in my little cool notes is Jesus' people are careful to evaluate their own sins, but they're slow to condemn others. And this is that passage about the speck in the log. It's like, before you help somebody else with their little speck of sin or problem, get the log of sin out of your own eye. Be tenderhearted. Be quick to judge, discern your own sins. Be best at that. Then number 12, if you notice, it skips over the section from chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. And here's why. Because I dealt with that last week, and I put it in prayer. But that's not how Jesus taught this. Jesus put this prayer part here. I'm skipping. I'm going to go back over a different way. And the prayer part, which I didn't see originally, I could see very clearly, is that little piece that's not left over when I'm putting the back bricks together. It really goes here. Jesus is talking about discernment, and so we'll show you where this fits. But then it goes to this final thing. Jesus' people treat others the way they want others to treat them. What do we call that? 
The golden rule. Isn't that beautiful? The golden rule. In other words, I like to say it this way. Do unto others as you would have them do unto your kids. That kind of thickens the plot, doesn't it? You know, do unto others as you would have them do the ones you love the very most. This is a Jesus teaching. This is what Jesus people do. They, this is just another way. And, then, and he says, and this is what the law and the prophets say. And if you know the Bible pretty well, when you read something like that, it should, ra- it should make really clear what this is talking about. There's another word for this, and that word is love. Over and over again, the Bible says, if you love, you fulfill the law. Now, we're going to go to the next slide, and this is where we're going to stay here today. While I show you, in what will seem like just a few short minutes, um, all of the places, how this theme runs through. Jesus' people, this is a big idea, they're discerning, but they're not judgmental. In your heart, you know, you ought to be saying, and I want to be saying, God, make me very, very discerning, but Lord, don't let me be judgmental, eager to judge. Make me eager to love not eager to judge, but God, please deliver me from being a jellyfish that doesn't believe anything, and he's of no consequence or help to anybody because you don't have, because I don't have convictions or things that I know to be true. A Jesus follower, a Jesus people is discerning, but they're not judgmental. And when we go back through the passage again, you'll see this. Now look in the first section, and notice this first thing. <coughs> In Matthew chapter 7, there are going to be four things here I want you to see. And judge not that you, don't, that you be not judged. With what judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With what measure you measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't see the log in your own eye? What is this saying? First, you judge yourself. It, it doesn't say that you shouldn't help get the speck out of somebody else's eye. It doesn't say that. Because the scriptures actually do teach that. It's a noble thing to help somebody to get the smallest sin out of their life. If you deliver somebody from their sin, you're doing a noble thing. It's something you should do. But here's what you should do first. Take care of your own sin. Discernment, judgment. Jesus never says don't ever judge. People in the world that don't know the Bible very well or Christians that haven't really study their Bible carefully in our culture frequently make this mistake and they jump on it they say you're judging you shouldn't judge let's clear up that right now you must judge you cannot be a Christian and not accurately judge another way of saying it because we you know and this is not what the way the scripture teaches it but a way of saying it would be there's judgment or judgmentalism and then there's discernment. But the Bible doesn't use the word judge in a bad way all the time. He says, Jesus is saying, don't, have, a, don't be, have an eager judgmental attitude toward other people. First, be discerning about yourself, but you know that you are supposed to judge because when you get to verse six, it says, don't cast your, 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 what's holy to the dogs or give your pearls to pigs. So the natural question would be, how would I recognize a dog when I see one? How do I know a pig when I see one? You know, this is not a literal dog or pig, but it's like telling truth to somebody who's unworthy to hear it requires what? Judgment, discernment. You will never make it through life without being able to discern between good and evil, right and wrong. And so right here at the beginning, first you judge yourself. This is like principle number one about being discerning but not judgmental. The most important thing, 
you should judge yourself first. Now, let's go to that wedding. Was one of the sweetest weddings I've ever attended. And all the time I sat there and watched this beautiful young couple make their vows to each other. A couple things were going through my mind. One was, wow, whoever hired them at the church was really smart. They were so smart. That was a great idea. I really was thinking that. That was a good hire, man. We're so blessed to have those young people. Um, that. Ben, but did you, if you were there, you know, they made vows of love to each other, and then they washed each other's feet. It would have been a lot easier day for me if they hadn't done that. Because, you know, Jesus says, you know, if you want to follow me, get on your knees and serve other people. I got to tell you that the flesh, Ken Pierpont's flesh, wants other people to serve him. I want my wife to serve me. I want my kids to serve me. I mean, I like privileges and attention and, you know. And then I I got to thinking about, God, I don't want to be that way. I want to be a server. I want to be like you. I want to be a giver. I want to be humble. I want to be holy. And And I'm 60. I'm running out of time. I can't say, well, I'm young anymore. It's like, well, you've been in the game long enough that you should be further down the road than you are right now. It just broke my heart. And as I sat there weeping, I said, well, God, thank you that you gave me a tender heart to see when I'm sinned against you and when I'm selfish or sinful or... I asked the Lord, please don't ever let me not have a tender heart. Can I ask you this? You know, do you have a tender heart to God? Are you like ready with an excuse? Or, or, or are you just like t- keeping your heart really tender? This is what Jesus is saying. He's like, don't just be irritated with other people. Have a tender heart toward me. That You're so sensitive that if something's out of place, it's like a log in your eye. You got to get it out. Then when you do that, you're the kind of person, you have to go around saying, hey, look at you. You have a speck in your eye. What will happen is when you get the log out of your eye, others will be attracted to you. And they will say to you, help me get the speck out of my eye. They'll watch you get the log out of your eye. They might not even need your help. They'll just watch how you did that and go, oh, I see. Dad confesses his sin. Dad takes the log out of his eye all the time. My dad has a tender heart. My dad has a humble heart. My dad has a holiness and humility about him. My dad asks forgiveness when he says something harsh. I see what that looks like. I'm going to be like my dad. See what I'm saying? Teens were asking me last Sunday night how the elders work in our church and how do they rule and how do they make rules and how they govern and I told them, well, the truth of the matter is they're not really eager to do that. What I see mostly is men that want to pray for you and love you and be an example. They're just not really eager to make a bunch of rules. What they're eager to do is be an example to you. They're eager to be prayerful. They do it every Saturday morning, formally. And they're really kind of slow to rush to decisions. They don't like to, you know, make decisions. And when they do, they try, they try to, I mean, I've been with them now a year and a half watching them. And what they do is they try to, if they have to make a decision, they try to make a decision like a, like a good dad that will be to the benefit of all those that are under their care. This is the Jesus way. First, we look at ourselves. Then other people can see how he did that. 
It's a little bit like, you know, if you want somebody else to be like Jesus, show them how, right? You be like Jesus. And if you have somebody in your life that's irritating the dickens out of you because they're not like Jesus, maybe they need a better example of being like Jesus. They usually don't need a lecture. They, they usually just need an example and somebody to pray for them. Now, let me go to the second thing. This is verse six. Be discerning with people. This is super important because you only have so much time and Jesus is teaching that if you take holy things and you give them to people who haven't shown that they're gonna appreciate those things, you're, you're, you're being foolish, you're not being discerning. And the way he says it is poetic. He says, don't take what's holy and give it to the dogs. And don't cast your pearls to pigs, to swine. He says, otherwise, they'll turn on you and they will hurt you. So, like, the way I do this is, like, I will, if there's a guy that I think might want to grow in the Lord, I might meet with him, I might give him a little something and give him a little assignment, and then if he fulfills that and comes back to me, I can see that he's not a pig, he's not a dog, he's a person that's hungry for truth. Uh, this is a powerful thing. Do you realize that God just stands, you know, at the ready to pour his wisdom into you if you're not a dog or a pig, you know? In the, in the ancient Near East, dog was not a little happy thing. It was like a dirty, nasty, gross thing, pig, bad. This is bad. Unworthy of truth. So Jesus is saying, I want you to, when you deal with people, first deal with your own sin, then you can help them deal with their sin, and don't burn time on people who have no reverence for me. When he sent his disciples into a village, he would say, look for a person of peace who invites you in. Not necessarily a believer, but a God-fearer. And if they invite you in, go there, live with them, and then you spread the word with their people. But, but he would say, but if you go to a city and they reject you, he says what? Shake the dust off your feet and go to another city. And so Jesus is, you know, he's patient. Thank the Lord for that. But he, he will not squander his wisdom on people who are unworthy, who are unwilling, and we have to be really discerning in, with, our, with people. Now notice the next, you might ask yourself, so what does this discernment have to do with this next thing about ask and seek and find and knock and so forth? And that's this. If you get to this point and you're looking at these people and you think, well then, Lord, how do I know if a person is a dog or a pig or a person who's unworthy to receive more truth? Look at this third thing, and that is you pray. Now it's, it would be obvious that we have a locus of authority and truth, which is the word of God. And so, one of the best ways to be discerning is to be a student of God's Word, right? You ever think about this? I, uh, I want unbiased news sources. Does this frustrate you? How many of you have been frustrated by this, trying to get an unbiased news source? You can turn one on, you go, well, they're obviously really liberal. We know their slant. And you look at the other one, you're like, wow, wow, this is really conservative. We have their slant. And then a Christian, is, you know, some Christians say, well, Jesus was a liberal, you know. I know some of you that activated your gag reflex right there. And others were like, no, Jesus was a conservative. I'm like, Jesus was a Jesus, right? Like, he and not that. It's like, maybe we should go, instead of liberal, conservative, whatever you think, why don't we just go with, what did Jesus say? And I have a feeling that that just kind of trumps, oops, there's a bad word. That... <laughs> That was Freudian now, wasn't it? That kind of overarches everything else. No matter who your favorite politician is or, or your favorite politician to hate is, 
Jesus has got his own kingdom. This has got his own rules, right? So, so here's the thing. I look for a new source that I think or a place where I can get information that, 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 that people have a reverence for God and his word. Does it square with the word? That's what I'm saying. But this still takes prayer. It takes study of the word. But he says, and it, you know, and your, your good father loves you. So if you ask him, it sounds a lot like the passage from who I believe is Jesus' brother, James, who says if a person asks for uh, wisdom, needs wisdom, let him ask God, and God will not get angry with him. Like a good father won't get angry at his son or daughter. So when we want to be discerning people and not judgmental people, deal, have a tender heart, deal with your own sin first, then help other people, then be very careful when you're dealing with people to know where you're going to spend your time, who you're going to spend your time with, who you're going to try to, as the object of your ministry or as your closest uh, friends and people that you have fellowship with, and then pray for discernment, realizing that God has promised, like a good father, he already knows what you need, and he'll give you wisdom, he'll give you discernment. I believe this is the theme that goes through this passage, which takes us then to verse 12 which is the golden rule, if you will, verse 12, where it says, if you, what you would have somebody do to you, you do to them. We live in a time of information overload. So if you think about this, it's more important for us to be discerning now than ever before. Let me ask you some questions. Are there, are there false prophets in the world today? What do you think? Jesus said there would be, and there are. Are there false teachers in the world today? Well, of course there are. Are there false professors with a false profession? Yeah, well, there are. There is that category, right? Does the Bible say there will be fewer as the days go toward the end or more? Of course it says more. So why then are Christians less discerning now than they seem to ever have been and more open the things that aren't true, we've got to have both of these folks. We've got to have discernment because we've got to recognize a false teacher, a false prophet, false professing, professor, false teaching. You've got to recognize them when you see them and reject them. You've got to be able to recognize a dog or a pig, a false prophet. You've got to be able to tell the good angels from the bad angels, the, the godly angels from the demons, you got to know the difference. You've got to be able to read something and know that's not square with the Bible. That's a little bit off. You've got to be discerning. Now more than ever, it's important that we don't just say, well, no, I'm loving. What a lot of people call love is just a kind of a sappy, syrupy, worthless sentimentalism that doesn't have any teeth in it to help people. So my son is at a concert with his wife. It's a secular concert. They're having a great night. There's a couple of women close to them. They're friendly people. They're making conversation. And the girls say to Kyle, we're, lesbi we're a lesbian couple. They say to Kyle, what do, you, what, what do you do for a living? He says, I'm a pastor. Then they say to him, oh, you probably hate us. Here's what I think in our culture there's all kinds of brokenness out there in, in us, right? Every single one of us, brokenness rises, goes down to the deepest part of us. Whether you like girls or boys or you don't know, brokenness goes right down to the deepest part of you, am I right? And people, when they know that, and they know that we're Christians, they're watching our eyes to see if we take a step back or if we take a step forward. 
Those girls were watching my boy's eyes going, is he going to step away from us in disgust? Or is he going to step toward us? Now listen, we don't step toward people with an undiscerning no answers for the brokenness that's taken them to hell. We step toward them because we have answers for them, the only answers there are. So we don't say, you're okay. Of course they're not okay. We're not okay. None of us are okay. Without Jesus, we're all going to hell for different reasons, right? But, so, but we know Jesus. So like Ken Smith, Pastor Ken Smith, he's an old guy. He's a Presbyterian dude. He's into exclusive psalmody. No drums in his church, just old Psalter, you know, stuff. He's a, he's a Calvinist guy. The dude is kind of a narrow-minded guy. But he's a wonderful, loving Christian. And, and there's a professor in his town, a woman who's an outspoken lesbian, that he and his wife invite, I told you the story before, Rosaria Butterfield, invites her over for dinner over and over again, loves her, listens to her. He has stepped away from her. He stepped toward her. Listen, the world that we're living in is looking at our eyes so that they can figure out our hearts. And here's what they need to know. We're discerning, but we're not judgmental. There is a truth that can set them free, but we're not eager to condemn them. The judgmental person is eager to condemn. The discerning person is eager to love. And the discerning person has something with which to love them. We have an answer nobody else has. So we don't need to step away from sinners. Because we're sinners, we step toward them. And we love them. This is the Jesus way. This is what Jesus' people do. This is what Jesus did. He went looking for troubled people. He looked looking for demon-possessed people. He, looked, he went looking for broken people. He went looking for diseased and broken people. And he healed them and he restored them and he forgave them. And he was even open to hypocrites if they would repent. So that's hopeful for all of us. The Bible says that we should be discerning. Listen, Romans 12, 2. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind by testing, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Be discerning people. Don't be judgmental people. Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits. It's in 1 John 4. Very loving Apostle John. Very loving. He was an apostle of love. He wasn't judgmental. But here's what he said. Don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see where they come from. God, for many false prophets have come out into the world. A while ago, I came to this church through a series of circumstances I had not predicted. And I came a bit wounded. And when I came and I met with the people... The, the leaders of the public committee, they said, well, maybe you could come here and it could be a place of healing for you. And it's so been that. And I love this church so much. And I do love every church I ever pastored. And, um, but I have a special love, you know, that God has given me for you. And every once in a while I think, well, now why is that? How did we fall in love so fast? And how is it that we, that there's something that's so special about you? And here's what I think it is. I think it's, I think it's this. I think, you know, you've been taught over the years to be, you've been faithfully taught by the Bible to have discernment and to, to have a high view of the Bible. Um, this is a Bible teaching church. It has been for many years and therefore it's discerning. But if it had been judgmental, it wouldn't have been a place of healing for us. It wouldn't have been a place of healing at all. And our hurt was so small compared to what most people have the hurt they have, they're going to walk in, they're going to look at us into our eyes 
and they're going to try to read our hearts and see if we're eager to love them or if we're eager to judge them. And they're keen on this. Here's what I'm saying to you. As I prayed about this this week, I thought, you know, do I need to kind of reprove the people for not being, you know, loving or, or discerning or, or for being judgmental? And I would say, no, no, no. I want to commend you because this is what I see. But here's what I fear. Our church is growing. God is sending us more and more people. This is wonderful. But this is one thing everybody who comes has to get. Everybody who comes here has to get this. If this changes, it'll be a sad change. You can go anywhere you want, find churches that don't believe much of anything. You can also find churches that are willing to beat you up every Sunday. But to find a church that's a Jesus church, that's both discerning and loving, that's a rare and beautiful thing. That's like a flower growing in the mountains. This is what we are, but this is what we need to stay. And we need to ask God to keep that true and make that even more true. And when new people come in, we need to show them, however that happened, it needs to keep happening. And where we see pockets of judgmentalism in us, we need to judge ourselves and get them out. And where we see, where we see a lack of discernment, then we also need to... Notice this last thing here. We judge ourselves. We're discerning with people. We pray for discernment. And the difference between discernment and judgment is love. And this is why, this is the thread that ties us together. So Jesus is saying, if you want something that helps with this, be quick to love people. James, it's just a little bit like you said on Mother's Day about your mother, which I can't quote exactly, but it was like, you can. Did I put you on the spot? Grace first, grace first. Can you remember that? It's like, what was that? Okay, so James doesn't remember. But on Mother's Day, he had this beautiful thing that he was saying with his mother, who most of you know went to be of the Lord. Uh, she said the default in their family, I suppose in the church, was to grace first and not to judgment. Now, no, maybe she had a big influence on this church, and I'm sure dad's had a big influence on this church. I'm just saying that makes this church... That makes me love this church. That makes sinners love this church. People need that. Let's just be that kind of people. Let's keep being that kind of people. People that are not going to compromise what the word says. But people that are just looking to step toward other broken sinners like us. And when you see this as such a beautiful thing, up at Camp Barakel, when I think about this, I think about a guy named Paul Gardner who's a, who's a friend, a mentor of mine, a guy that when I grow up, I want to be like him. I told him that the other day. I said, Paul, you're a year younger than me. I said, when I grow up, Paul, I want to be like you. And then Paul says, predictably, well, let's just both try to be like Jesus. But here's, here's an example. So my son was at Camp Barakel, and he was counseling, and they had a little rule but there's certain things that a kid's not supposed to wear. And I think a kid had a cap on that had some kind of a beer advertisement or tobacco advertisement. And they thought, well, that's probably not healthy, you know, to promote that with, teen, with kids. So they said to this boy, you know, if you don't mind, you put that hat away this week and wear something else. And the boy says, no, I'm not going to do that. And he was just adamant, no, I'm not going to do that. Chuck says, well, I mean, if you, if you, it's a rule, and if you don't do that, we're going to have to send you to the camp director. And the kid goes, send me to the camp director because I'm not taking his hat off. So Chuck goes, okay. So he takes him to Paul, and Paul takes him in his office, and they, close, they talk for a while. After a while, he comes out, you know. And 
Chuck says to Paul, what, what happened? Paul says, well, while I was talking to him, I asked him, I said, why do you love that hat so much? He said, well, it's the last thing my dad gave me before he died, and I'm not taking it off. And Paul said, you don't ever have to take that hat off, son. You can wear that hat wherever you want to. If you see something weird about somebody, don't be quick to judge. Right? Paul, Paul and I were talking, and he told me about a family that was Mormon. They sent their daughter to Camp Barakel, which is a Christian, it's an Orthodox Christian camp. There would be like serious doctrinal difference between Mormonism and, and this. And, and the mom wrote a letter of protest back that the son had come and had a good experience, the daughter come, had a good experience, except the counselor was trying to give the girl the gospel and implied that she wasn't saved. And so mom, you know, kind of lit up the camp director, Paul. Paul wrote her this letter back, and I want to read it to you because it gives you the heart of this. What does it look like to be discerning but not judgmental? So a letter to a, a, a Mormon mom. By way of introduction, I'm Paul Gardner, Barakel's director. Hannah and I have served the camp here since the 80s. We've raised our children here. You ask a good question. I want to give you a fair answer. But it's a sort of answer that requires nuance. Nuance that comes across better face-to-face -face conversation over warm tea and a kitchen table. Which I thought was kind of funny because Mormons don't drink coffee. Anyway, I suspect that your daughter's camp counselor might have been a little overzealous in her presentation. There might have been numerous reasons for that. But I tend to assume it goes with being college age. This campers, the, the girl, the, the counselor, is a sweet girl, and she's very responsive to our training and coaching, but she might have been too dramatic or too overbearing for your daughter. I wasn't there to witness the conversation. I don't know for sure. I'm sad your daughter was left confused and hurt. It's certainly not our goal for the week. I'd like to think your son's experience was more normal, and I want to sincerely apologize. As a parent, I feel badly. As a camp director, I'm sorry. Then, and here is where it's easy for me to misread you or you to misread me. He's just done not judgmental. Now he's going to do discerning, see? And he says, um, Camp Barakel holds us some basic tenets of the Christian teaching that don't align with the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. As an example, I don't think that the Mormon definition of the Trinity is adequate to explain what the Scripture teaches. And then he puts a hyperlink there. However, this is important. We at Barakel love people of every skin color, economic standing, accent, or creed, and we're not interested in having children leave Barakel feeling hurt or confused, but we're owned by 30 Protestant churches that exist to promote the historic, non-restorationist view of Christianity. So a knowledgeable Mormon is going to disagree with us at points. It's not our intent to hurt. It's our most basic desire to open a scripture and explain it using historic Christian categories. If your daughter returns, she doesn't have to have a one-on-one -on -one with her counselor. We would encourage that, but I'll continue my efforts to train camp counselors, but that's not required. Without using any names, I'll probably use your feedback as an example in our training this June. I'm very sad that he names the girl, then have fun and have an encouraging conversation. That was our goal. Again, I would love for you to know that we care about you and your children and my wife and I, we wish that we could have you over on an afternoon for herbal tea and a little honey. I think I would enjoy meeting you. That's the kind of church I want to be. That's why I like this church. I think it's that kind of church. In the church I pastored previously, an incident happened. That really encouraged me. We had this concert one night. It was a kids' choir concert. And I was standing toward the back of the auditorium one night, 
when this kid comes in, and his pants were sagging way, way down. Now, most of our elders didn't wear pants like that. They, they were sagging way, way down. His undies were showing. And he had picked his undies carefully to show. They were nice undies, you know. Because he knew they were showing. And he had this big shirt, and he had a 50-50 cap, and it was kind of tilted sideways. And he had a big chain of bling. He put more money in his outfit than I had bought my cheap suit from pennies cheaper than what I guarantee you his hat was half of my suit you know so it's not like he hadn't thoughtfully dressed and here he comes down the aisle kind of like real slow down the center, <laughs> center aisle this big fan-shaped auditorium and everybody was just watching him because he was just dressed unusually for that particular culture and he sat right down in the front row Later on, here's what I heard. There was a visitor, was an older man, who's kind of offended. Here's that boy. He doesn't know enough to take his cap off in church. He doesn't have respect for God. So he went walking back to one of our ushers. And one of our ushers was a sweet man who, who was raised in Kentucky. And he was just a very old-school, reverent man who would dress up his way, his preference for showing honor to God was to never come to church without a suit on or with a, or a jacket or tie. And he was just a wonderful, sweet man who's expressing his preference that way. And he was one of our ushers. And this man came back to him and he says, that kid up there, he needs to take his hat off in the house of God. You need to go up there and tell him to take his hat off. Now, the old fellow from Kentucky looked at the other guy and he said, here at our church, we just don't do that. Now, I don't kiss men, and I wasn't tempted to kiss him, but I was sort of tempted to give him a hug. I went back to him, and I said to him, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. You know the story behind that boy? I was encouraging our people to reach lost people, so they reached out to their neighbor, and nobody wanted to come except the daughter, and the daughter came, and somebody noticed that she liked to sing. So they said, how would you like to be in our choir? She joined the choir. So that night, her brother came to hear her sing in the choir. Can you imagine if somebody had been quick to judge him, how sad that would have been? I wouldn't have been proud of that. So I believe this is the kind of people we are. I believe this is the kind of people we want to be. Let's ask God to help us keep that tender heart, wise and discerning, biblically sound, not eager to judge, not stepping away from broken sinners like us, stepping toward them with, with the love of Christ. We're going to pray right now. We're going to sing. We'll be dismissed. Summer will begin. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Jesus, thank you for your teaching, for being an example to us. Thank you for putting examples in our lives of people that we've seen you in them. Help us to be that kind of people, I pray. I pray, Lord, that if there is stuff in our lives, our thoughts and our behavior that's not pleasing to you. You help us get that log out of our eye right now and have a real tender heart, a humble heart. That, Lord, that we could then go and help other people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.